man, I walk in here and there's Christmas trees and all that. I just get giddy. This is a fun time of year. Uh, the Advent season is my favorite season. Uh, this time with our church family is uh, always a good time. And so pardon my scratchy voice, it is also that time of year, right? And uh, so anyway, we're going to pray that the Lord will be with us uh, as we begin this season. Patricia mentioned earlier what Advent was, uh, though as is true for our church, most of you don't arrive until about 1145, so maybe you missed that. So let me just go back over this. All right, it's okay, we can laugh at yourselves in church. Here we go. Uh, Advent means coming. It, it means arrival. And so when we talk about Advent, what we're talking about is the season in the traditional church calendar for which uh, maybe we're probably most familiar, but it's a time set aside in the church calendar to think about, to reflect on, to, to pause and to take a deep breath and, and to consider the first coming of Jesus Christ, that, that He came as a baby in a manger, born humbly. So while we're thinking of that, we also think about and look forward to the return of Christ. And He'll come again one day as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen? And, and so we look forward with anticipation to that moment, to that time. That is our hope, as you'll see today. Now, if anything is true about this time of year, uh, what I notice in me is as much as I love the Advent season, I love Christmas, I love uh, Christmas songs. I'm the weirdo listening to Christmas music November 1st. You know, as soon as Halloween's over, the playlist goes on. That's just who I am. That's me. I, I get in that mode. I get in that moment early because it just makes me happy. All right? So as much as I enjoy all of that, what I know about this season is you and I can become quickly distracted just by the everyday hustle and bustle, right? You, you've got presents to shop for or to think about. You've got is that me doing that? Y'all hear that? Okay. Sorry, I was hearing that. I wasn't sure what it was. I, I didn't know if it was, you know, my manly beard or what. So <laughs> it's okay. You can laugh at me too. Um, you're laughing with me, right? So anyway, this season can be such a distraction for us. It, it can cause us to to just begin to look at all the marketing ads that are out there. We can start to think about everything but Jesus Christ is kind of the point I'm trying to make here. And, and so we'll think about it, we'll look on it, we'll be distracted by, and, and it will interrupt our mode of thinking. It'll interrupt our Christian lives. It'll interrupt what's most important to us. So, so let me give you an example. Even for my kids, as, as much as I love Christmas, right? And the things of Christmas. And we love Santa in our house, right? What, what we do at Christmas time is we're pointing to Jesus consistently, constantly, in the same way that we are every, every other day of the year. All right? We're thinking through Him. We're doing family devotionals. We're thinking about Jesus as it pertains to Christmas. We're, we're telling cool stories uh, about the, the life of St. Nicholas and who he was really and, and who, uh, who he has become and why he does the things he does. And so there's a way to introduce always Jesus into the rhythms of our life. Amen? And so this is what we want to do. So I want to help you guys with that through this series. We call this series Advent for this purpose. We're going to consider that. We're going to consider the coming of Christ. We're going to consider um, the second coming of Christ, which we still anticipate. And as we do that this year, to help us do that, we're going to walk through... Uh, just some key verses in Luke 1 and 2. 
And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and as you're turning there, I want to pray for us. Father, we love you. And God, we are glad to be here. Uh, as we've said a few times now, Lord, as we open up your word now, would you help our hearts to just uh, to, to exhale a bit, to take a deep breath, and to see Jesus this morning? Lord, I pray that as we look upon these words, uh, help us to value the Bible, that, that God wrote a book. Lord, you wrote something for us to read and to examine, to give us life, to be our daily bread to be more important for us than even the air that goes to our lungs. Father, help us to treasure your word now as we open this book. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what I want to do is, if we hope to understand the birth of Christ more fully, I don't want to just assume that we're all on the same page as it pertains to this. So I think what we need to do is we need to look at or examine the need behind why Jesus comes. So, so what is the need behind Jesus' coming? Why, why does God send Jesus for us? Why does He send Him in a manger and, and all of those things? All right, so in Genesis chapter 2, what we see, and I'm just going to walk you through this narrative, all right? Feel free to read Genesis 2 and 3, uh, you know, when you go home today. But let me just kind of walk you through the narrative so that we can save a little time here. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam. And when God creates Adam, He commands him to do one thing, to work the garden and to keep the garden. All right, he's, he's to work it and to keep it. He's to treat it as his own. He's to take care of it. God places Adam in the garden. He, he gives him access to every plant and tree for food in the garden. He's got access to whatever he wants except for one. There's this one tree in the center of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one's off limits. So God in His grace gives him free reign of everything else in the garden except for one tree. He says, not that one, Adam. Stay away from that one. So you fast forward a little bit. Adam's alone. God creates a woman for Adam, a companion, a helpmeet, someone to work the garden, to keep the garden with him, to be with him in this time. And so the woman is in the garden. The man is in the garden. And Satan comes to the woman in the form of a serpent. And he begins to ask questions about the command of God, saying things like, did God really say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? How many of you know that's a little bit of a twisted look at what God actually said? And so Eve, rightly so, tells him, no, it wasn't that we shouldn't eat of any tree, it's that we should not eat of that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, well, why can't you eat of that tree? And Eve says, if we're to eat of that tree, then, then uh, he says, if we eat of that tree, then in that day we will surely die. And so Satan begins to question that. He begins to cause some doubt in Eve. And he says, no, you won't die. God's just telling you that to keep you from becoming like him. Because if you become like him, you won't need him anymore. And so now Eve is enticed by this. She's excited a little bit over this. As is with all temptation, it sucks you in. You're drawn into it. You begin to think, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I need that. And so Eve takes of the fruit. She eats and she hands some to her husband who was apparently there with her, next to her. And he eats also. And then something happens. Immediately, they are made aware of their sin. They're made aware of their nakedness. 
They begin to realize that there's no clothing on themselves. And what never bothered them before because of their purity now bothers them. And so they begin to make fig leaves, uh, sew together fig leaves to make clothing for themselves. And then they hear God coming, so they hide. And as they're hiding, God calls out to them. And He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam, as with all of us, no matter how hard you're trying to hide from God, when He calls out to you, you will answer Him. Adam responds, We heard you walking in the garden and we hid ourselves because we are naked. To which God replies, although already knowing the answer, He says, well, who told you that you're naked? Did you eat of the tree of which you were commanded not to eat? And Adam replies, (laughs) the woman, that's it, that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate from it. And then the woman replies, as God looks at her and says, what have you done? The woman replies, the serpent (laughs) deceived me and I ate. Sin is, has made its arrival. Sin has entered mankind in that very moment. Romans 5 tells us that the sin that was in Adam and Eve in that moment is also in us from birth, from conception. David says in Psalms that in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that she was sinning when she conceived him, but that he was conceived with sin in his heart. This is bad. This is devastating. This moment in the garden so many years ago is a representation or it's a look at, sorry, it's a picture of the intimate relationship being fractured. This relationship that we have with God is now broken because of sin. Death now reigns, not just spiritually. Not just spiritually do we die, but we now physically die. We, we all know this to be true. There's nothing that this man or this woman could do to reverse it. There's nothing that they could do to set things right, to reverse time just a few moments earlier and make a different decision. It's happened. Satan's temptations are always the same. He always overpromises and underdelivers. This is who he is. His temptation brought death to mankind. Spiritual, physical death. And he's still doing the same. So God is now standing here with the serpent. He's standing here with the woman and the man. And He announces in Genesis chapter 3 the curses on all three of them. This is their new way of life. This is who they have become. This is something they will never escape under their own power. This is what He says to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And all the women said... Good gosh. (laughs) Your desire will be contrary to your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. So this is where we begin to see the fracture in the marriage relationship that a woman now desires to, to be in at times the role of her husband. And as a husband, what happens is you begin to domineer over your wife and we begin to butt heads constantly. This is where the fracture in marriage comes about. To the man, he says this, essentially, this is my summary, it was pretty long. He says, your work will be extremely difficult. The ground which bore fruit so easily for you will now give you thorns and thistles. It will now be rough and tough. And by the sweat of your brow will you eat bread all the days of your life until you return to the dust of the ground from which you came. Death. Difficulty. Decay. And then God sends them out of the garden. Now imagine it with me. Adam and Eve walking away from the garden, walking away from God's protective hand, walking away from His provision, walking away in their shame, despised, and, and feeling as though they have betrayed the one relationship that meant the most to them. They're now walking from the garden with that on them. And they're walking into what would have been an unknown world. A world without the surety of God's hand. A world without the provision of God. A world without um, life forever. A world full of sin and brokenness. A world full of pain and sorrow and death. They're full of shame, guilt, despair. Now, now this is the part I'm going to add just for our brains to think through. I imagine that they find a place to settle. I imagine that it's now nighttime. They're gathered maybe around a fire and they're reflecting on their day. But they sit silently. No words. No commotion. Just thinking about their day. Sitting. You know the feeling well, don't you? That, that feeling where you're in despair or you're defeated, that feeling of loss, that feeling of pain, deep pain, a troubled heart, if you will, where all you can do is just sit. Maybe you're weeping, but you're hurting. And I imagine that as they're replaying the words that God spoke to them in their heads, these curses, thinking about their life to come, I imagine one of them thinks about the curse on the serpent. And that as they think about the curse on the serpent, they begin to raise their head in thought and a smile begins to come across their face. And the one sitting across from them notices it and says to him, what, what are you smiling about? What's going on in your head? To which the one would reply, do you remember God's curse on the serpent? Yeah, what about it? Well, no, do you, do you remember the details of what he said? Yeah, he said the serpent would be despised all of his days, that he would wander around on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. What, what about it? No, no, go on. What else did he say? And the other one sits and thinks for a moment. A smile begins to come across their face. God said, I will put enmity between your, you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, which is a singular word in the Hebrew, he, meaning it has one person in mind. 
He will bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. And the other one responds, God is not going to leave us in this. This will not be our destiny forever. He's going to save us and He's going to use our offspring to do it. Now I just imagine in the middle of deep sorrow, in the middle of great remorse, in the middle of troubling pain where you've just stabbed God Almighty in the back, that Adam and Eve recalled the words of God and they found hope in the middle of their hopelessness. You see, God makes a promise to mankind in His curse on the serpent that one day a child, a specific child, a specific man will come. And though he will be wounded, he will deal a death blow to the serpent. Following that event, God spends the next 4,000 or so years reminding mankind of His promise. Let me walk you through a few of these prophecies that were told well over hundreds of years, even thousands of years for some of these before Christ steps foot on earth. Numbers 24, 17, I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. In Deuteronomy 18, 19, he's, we see there, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, this is speaking of the prophets, yes, the prophets that we would begin to see, but we know that all prophets find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down. Now this is Jonathan speaking to David. A prophecy. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And you shall come from, and sh who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So from the throne of David, from the family line of David, we see that Jesus would come. In Isaiah 7.14, possibly the most incredible prophecy of all of them, some 700 plus years before Mary and Joseph, we see this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, 6-7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Praise God. In Isaiah 11, 1 and 10, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
In Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, and 33, 14 through 16, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And finally, in Micah 5, 2, the same verse that Jasper read earlier, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The Old Testament over and again prophesies about the coming of Christ. Here we read some about His birth, but throughout the Old Testament we'll see prophecies about His life. We'll see prophecies about His death, about His resurrection, about the future still to come. God was constantly, even before Christ, reminding His people about the promise made in Genesis chapter 3.15. That I will crush the head of that serpent one day. And all of this gets us to Luke 126, possibly my longest introduction ever. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, now as I'm reading this, just take note, if you will, mentally, of some of those prophecies I've just read. Just begin to see how they're fulfilled even in this set of verses. To a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man meeting Uh, engaged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And can you blame her? An angel pops into your room. You're just kind of hanging out. All right? Angel pops in. Greetings, O favored one. You're like, wait, what kind of greeting is this? Right? What's about to happen? be a little startling. I, I get her fear. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. That word favor there means grace. That, that the Lord has shown you grace. You have found favor with God. Meaning, Mary is the recipient of God's grace. She didn't do anything to earn it. She didn't make herself more special than everyone else. God chose her. Placed His grace on her. She's not the giver. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Anybody remember Genesis 3.15? From your offspring will come a head crusher. Anybody remembers Isaiah 7.14? From a virgin shall we see Emmanuel. And you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High was the way that people referred to God. There were many little G gods around in that day. They would refer to, monotheistic Jews would refer to God as the Most High, that He is big God. He's the one who demands our trust. He's the one that demands our allegiance. This was the angels making this pronouncement. He's saying He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Another prophecy fulfilled. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, which we see in Isaiah 9, 6-7. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
This is beautiful. This is amazing. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, she would have known Isaiah 7.14, but in this moment, she's bewildered. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Because of a virgin birth. The virgin birth is essential to Christian belief. This is not something that we need to deny. This is not something that we need to try to sidestep around. This is the power of God on display doing what only God could have done. The other part of this is is that if Jesus had been conceived of a man, he would be more man. He would be fully man in that way, with, without the holiness that comes with being fully God also. And so when God impregnates, if you will, Mary through the Holy Spirit, miraculous miracle, God becomes fully God, fully human. Jesus becomes fully God, fully human in that moment and is born in that way. And so that he can be perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, yet fully human also. He is the only one who could do this. We'll talk further about that in a moment. Verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So here, Mary, let me fortify your faith. You know your cousin Elizabeth, the one that's barren? Well, she's pregnant. You'll see in the coming weeks that who she's pregnant with is quite significant also. And he reminds her, nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I love the final moment of this. The, The angel departs there, but I love what Mary says. And I want us to sit on what Mary says for a moment and kind of expound on it. What Mary says is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to, let it be to me according to your word. Mary is submitting herself to the promise of God. She's submitting herself to the purposes of God. She's saying, Here I am, I'm your servant. Do with me as you wish. Her hope in that moment was for God to fulfill these promises. There's no doubt that Mary has questions, further questions than the ones she asked. She has to be nervous at least about what people are going to say, about how Joseph would respond. But the words of God through the angel would have brought her great hope too. She knew the story of Adam and Eve. She knew the promises. She had heard them read aloud many times. She knew the people, the the hope that the people still had around her that the Jewish people still had for God to keep his promises. And now he was going to fulfill those promises through her. This would have brought her hope. No matter what it may have cost her, she was confident in God and ready to serve his purposes. Now, about this hope, Paul defines hope this way. He says that we do not hope in what we see, rather we hope in what we cannot see. And if we hope in what we cannot see, then we are patient in our hope. So hope is believing in something, trusting God for something, knowing something that you cannot even see yet, but you're trusting God in such a way that it's like it's a physical object in your hand already. You're believing God that way. Ultimately, Jesus brings 
hope. He fulfilled the hopes of all who were before Him, of all who trusted God's promises. He gave all who would trust Him as their Savior great hope for their lives also. In John 14, 1 through 6, he says, as we looked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to remind us all of this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? No, of course you wouldn't, Jesus. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, wait a minute, Lord. How can we know the way to where you're going? We, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus said to him, yes, you do. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So when you receive Jesus by faith, you trust him as the way, you're trusting him as the truth, as the life you receive a right relationship with God the Father. Again, the same kind of relationship that Jesus has. This is what Jasper preached on last week so faithfully. He said, my peace, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give, but I give you my peace. And so uh, we see that we get the same peace, the same right relationship that God the Father has with Jesus the Son. And we see that we also receive the same right relationship that Adam and Eve destroyed so many years ago. And God gives it to us by sending Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. In His death and resurrection, what happens is Jesus crushes the head of Satan. He crushes sin and death. Now He, again, is the only one who could have done it, like I said a moment ago. Because He was fully human, yet He's perfectly holy. So Jesus says with confidence, as a way of bringing peace, in His final hours, He tells you, as he's about to go to the cross, he tells you, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Sure, I am going away. But as we see later in John 14, even that was good for us because he sends the Holy Spirit. He says, sure, I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can be with me forever. In Ephesians, what we see about God is one of the things he most looks forward to about heaven is dwelling with his people. God loves you. God desires to be in right relationship with you. Yes, we fractured the relationship. Yes, we've sinned and we've caused this distance between God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, according to Ephesians 2. But God, according to His great mercy and according to His great love, saves us by His grace. That through faith you can live in Him. It's not according to anything that we do. It's simply the grace of God. So Jesus goes away so that many people, so that the job can go forth, so that greater works will you do than what I have done. I'm going to send you out with the Holy Spirit that you may go and win the lost. That you may go and preach the good news and see people saved. He goes away so that many people across history past, across future to come, from every tribe, tongue, and nation can receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and dwell with God Almighty forever. Peter tells us that Jesus isn't slow to return as some are, are, are quick to, to count slowness. He says that He is patient, hoping that many sons will come to Him, that many will be saved. But you and I as believers, we... We get something in this life. We get to live our ordinary lives with an extraordinary hope. 
the hope of the glory of God. We, like Mary, submit ourselves to His Word and His promises. If He tells us to take heart, then we take heart. If He tells us to trust that He is going away to prepare a place for us, then we take heart that there is a place for us. That there is a world to come. A world with no more trouble. A world with no more sorrow. A world with no more pain or temptation or sickness or death. Peter calls this kind of hope a living hope. The Father of Christ has an unshakable hope for now and in the future. Our future dwelling place with God in glory. This is what we hope for. So I think about my life. I think about the body, this body, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think about this year. I think about the season coming up, Christmas, Thanksgiving, which we just had. And what I think about is I think about brokenness. I I think about loss. Some of you suffered devastating loss this year. Loss of life. Some of you have suffered illness. We are currently walking with a family in this church through breast cancer and recovery from that. Praying that the Lord would bring healing. All of us, all of us know loss intimately. You hurt this morning for some reason or another. Maybe it's the the tendency you have to submit to your own temptations and the lust of your heart. Maybe you feel lost because of that. Maybe you feel lost because you have lost life this year. Maybe you feel lost because you lost life several years ago, and every Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're totally reminded of it again. Not to mention every other day of the year, it just seems so much more compounded this time of the year. This world is brutal. If I can't press on with the hope of Christ, if I can't press on with the hope of glory, then why in the world am I still breathing? What's it worth? I think these are the questions we have to ask. Jesus goes away to prepare a place. If I can't hope in that, I've got nothing else to hope in. So we submit ourselves to that. It's this very hope that Paul describes as our way to live each day. If you want, you can flip over to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read this and we'll wrap up. We'll just kind of walk through this together. In verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified means you've been declared righteous by God's grace through faith. We'll see that it's by God's grace here in a moment. He says we have peace with God, meaning that garden relationship is restored, meaning the peace that Jesus and God have is given to us. It's imputed to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's by His death, by His life, by His resurrection that we have justification, that we have peace with God. He says through Him. Paul's writing, he says, through Jesus Christ, he's the way to this, all right? He says, we also have obtained access by faith 
into this grace. Now here's the grace. The grace that justifies. The grace that reconciles. The grace that sanctifies me. Changes me from one degree of glory to the next as I live day by day and ultimately will glorify me one day in heaven with God. That grace. He says, into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice. The word rejoice here means to boast joyously. It's to tell about it. It's to talk about it. It's not just to sit and to be somber and mopey all the time. It's not to complain. It's not to think that my life is terrible all the time. It's not that we can't go through seasons of that, but but that kind of Christian ought to be an oxymoron. Meaning that if you have the joy of Christ in your heart, you know that there's a better world to come. And so therefore we rejoice, not in this life, not over the loss of this life, not over those things that we suffer in this life so much so, but we rejoice in what they're producing for us. That's not my words, let's read. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, God's promise to glorify and to perfect us at the last day. That is what produces joy. It's a hope in that. It's a hope in the glory of God to come that produces this joy in us. Not only that, we, uh, not only that but we rejoice. So we can rejoice in our sufferings, meaning we boast, again, joyously about these things. Sufferings there means all kinds of adversity. It's physical, it's mental, it's financial, it's spiritual, it's all of it. All kinds of adversity, especially the ones that really stink. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why, Paul, do you do such a crazy thing? Because I know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance is the inward strength to hold on. When life is crumbling and my sufferings are pouring down on top of me and I'm stuck in the miry pit, it feels like, and I can't ever get out, I hold on. I cling to Christ Jesus. Like Jacob wrestling with the Lord. I'm not letting go until you give me that blessing. I'm holding on. Holding on. It's an inward strength. Sufferings produce an inward strength to hold on. And that inward strength to hold on produces character. The word character, they couldn't even come up with a great word for it. But it means to be proven. It's proven character. Or it's undeniable Christ-likeness. So I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I rejoice also in my sufferings because my sufferings are producing endurance and my endurance is producing character. What does character do? Character reinstills, it reestablishes hope. It produces hope in us. Hope is back to the original hope. It's back to the hope of the glory of God. It's, it's more hope. The tested and proved faithfulness of God builds tested and proved Christians of God. We hope more confidently as life goes on. As we cling to the Lord, we hope more confidently. We don't become more frightened. We don't become more afraid. We don't become more scared. We become more confident in God. We become less confident in ourselves, which is a great thing. And more confident in the Lord. And what about this hope? Well, the promise here is that that hope in the glory of God will not put you to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So day by day, hope is built in us by God's love, which is being poured out. The word poured out there means to literally take a glass and dump it over. There's no constraints to that. It's just poured out lavishly. God's love is poured out lavishly on your heart and in your soul because of the Holy Spirit, which bears witness to Him inside of you. Praise God for this. I'm not without hope. I am one of the ones with the greatest hope in the world. And so are you if you trust the Lord. So are you if you trust the Lord. Amen? This is your hope. This is our hope. Paul's hope here as he writes to this church is our hope. It's our hope. We can trust this. We can trust Him. This this hope will not put us to shame, meaning you can count on it. You can count on it. You, you, you can't count on hope that is seen, as we saw earlier, but you can count on hope that is unseen. And if you cannot count on it, then Paul says, if you can't count on this hope of the glory of God, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be ashamed or to be pitied. In other words, if the hope that we have in Christ today is going to put us to shame in the next life, then we're to be pitied now because we're giving ourselves, we're suffering for no reason. He says that we ought to just eat and drink and enjoy our lives. But instead, we know that as we give up things, as we suffer loss, as we go through terrible times, that suffering is producing something in you. The loss of your child far too early. The cancer diagnosis. The sin that you face every day. The propensity you have to run and do your own thing. The war you have within your own heart. The doubts that you suffer. Is God good or real? All of that. All of those sufferings are doing something in you. Paul says that they're building for you an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that this world has comprehension of. So you don't suffer as someone with no hope. We suffer as ones who are being built into a better image of Christ so that one day, one day, you and I can live with Christ in heaven forever. That is our hope. That's what we hold on to. It's all that we have. If we trust the words of Jesus, if we live this life with a living hope, then we have this promise that we will not be put to shame. We have this promise that He is going to return. We have this promise that He will produce Christ's likeness in us through our sufferings. We have this promise to increase our hope. His promise to give us joy in our hope. If you're taking notes, this is the one thing I want you to write down today as I get ready to wrap this up. Hope is the joyous foundation on which God builds up and sustains His people. Hope is the joyous foundation on which God builds up and sustains His people. As one pastor said recently, he said, we have hope today precisely because we have hope in what the Lord will do with us in glory. He says some will call it fantasy, but we, but, but we will come 
to see it is a hope that gives us power to live more fully today. Amen? Who cares what the world says about it? So how does one receive such a hope, you may ask? If you're in here today, you're like, oh, how do I get a hope like that? You receive hope the moment that you realize that hope doesn't begin with you. Hope doesn't begin with you. Hope begins with Jesus Christ. It begins with the only one who can rescue you. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, probably an idol, once said, without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, there is no hope. Hope begins with Jesus Christ. He is the Savior promised to the world for thousands of years before His arrival, before that first advent. When Christ came, promises were fulfilled. Hope was further built up. People saw and said, yes, finally. And the offer of hope was extended to all humanity. This is what Jesus is saying to you today. You're looking for hope? This is Christ's words to you. He's saying if you were tired and weary of your sins. If you're fed up with trying to be your own Savior. He's saying, come to me and I will give rest for your souls. Jesus knows you fully. To God, those fig leaves on Adam and Eve were foolishness. Hiding behind a bush, foolishness. Yet here you and our eye making fig leaves and hiding behind bushes before the Lord today. God knows you fully. You know what Romans 5, 6, and 8 says? That even though He knows you fully, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ died for you because of God's love for you. Christ died for you as you're a sinner. You know what the hope is in 7, 8, and 9 of Romans 5? It's that if He died for you as a sinner, how much more does He love you now as someone who's been justified by His grace? Trust that today. Don't hide from Him. He loves you just the way you are. He died for you just as you are. Come to Him. Find rest for your souls. J.I. Packer said this. He said, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, He might hang on a cross. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you make Him the Lord of your life by confessing your sin and placing your faith, your trust, your hope in Christ? Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we live with hope? I think partly we must cultivate hope. We, we must beg Christ as we read the Scriptures, as we pray, to show us more of Himself. And, and then when He does, we must make it shine in our life that we have hope in Christ. How do you make hope shine? It's by depending on Christ Every day for everything. He is my hope. He is my righteousness. He is my fulfillment. He is what sustains me. He is. 
We must speak of heaven, speak of the glory to come. Tell people about our hope in Christ. Talk about it openly. Let it be the main thing in our conversations. Let unbelievers see that you have a hope in Christ that is real, that affects your life right now. So many times we think about our hope in Christ as being, ah, that's after I take my final breath. No, that's your hope now. It's for today. Live it. I think the message of Romans 5 is this, is that the best way to show our hope is to show it through adversity. The best way to proclaim Christ is to do it through adversity, through sufferings, through trials. Again, Charles Spurgeon adds something beneficial. He says, No faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs through adversity. Tested faith brings experience. You would have never believed your own weakness had you not needed to pass through trials. How many times can that be said? And you would have never known God's strength and His strength had His strength not been needed to carry you through those same trials. Hope is found, it is grown in us through difficult times. So hold on. Submit yourself to God's Word. Submit yourself to His promises, just as Mary did. And do not let go. Hold on to the promise, the hope of the glory of God. Jesus is returning. You have a place in heaven if you're a believer. This sorrow, this pain that we feel, this hurt we feel will be gone one day. This is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. No matter what may come, hold on. I'm going to add this and then I'll let you stand to your feet. R.C. Sproul said, Hope is called the anchor of the soul, as we see in Hebrews chapter 6, because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. He's saying it's not simply, I wish I had this, or I wish this were different. That's not hope. Like we say, I hope that this will happen. We use that more when we should use the word wish. Hope is not simply a wish. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. It holds on to the promises of God as my reality today. All those things which I've lost will be restored. All that brokenness which I feel will be healed. All that pain which I've suffered will be gone away with. Jesus is actively restoring us now and will finally do it in heaven one day. Amen? Hope in the glory of God now and forever. Would you stand to your feet this morning?